0: The speakers of this term are speaking about the future. Several are also <coughs> speaking about civil military relations. Uh, we also have um, speakers who cover regions of the world, we want to make sure that particular conflict regions get uh, sufficient airing. Um, last week uh, we heard about um, UN peacekeeping and the, the problems of civil relations in that peacekeeping environment. This is rather different. This is a more robust approach, should we say, um, and in particular looking at the Caucasus. Um, and it's um, my great pleasure to introduce you, if you don't already know, uh, Professor Monica Toft, uh, formerly from the Harvard Kennedy School, now um, since 2012 at the Blavatsky School of Government. Um, it's very difficult because to list all your great accolades, but um, amongst them, we should mention um, that she was, of course, originally a soldier, so she's a soldier scholar, uh, and uh, is now a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, Minorities at Risk Advisory Board, Political Instability Task Force, Carnegie Foundation in New York, it's a Fulbright uh, scholarship for Norway, uh, which has been deferred at the time being, um, and a Carnegie Scholar, of, of Research on Religion violence, and Violence. So this is very much um, her field that she'll be speaking on today. Amongst all her books, uh, there are many, of course, on uh, this problem of war and religion, um, but also on uh, populations and minorities, and those who are oppressed. I'm going to read the full book list, mm. because that would take too long. Um, suffice to say that um, this is connected to your most recent article, D- Denial and Punishment of the North Caucasus, Evaluating the effectiveness of coercive counterinsurgency with uh, Yuri Zhukov, uh, which will appear in or has appeared I think, the Journal mm-hmm. of Peace Research now, isn't it, yes. um, Monica? Thank you so much for coming because this is the living link between Bravatnik and CCW, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're very much looking forward to hearing.
1: Well, thank you, at all. Thank you. and thank you for coming. So, as um, Rob said, this is sort of an ongoing project that I'm doing with mm-hmm. a brilliant graduate student at Harvard, uh, Yuri Zhukov, uh, and. We've already published one article in JPR that sort of looks at counterinsurgency and counterinsurgency tactics by states, in this case, Moscow, the Russian government, the Ministry of Defense, and what is the best way to sort of counter insurgents given the tactics that they use. So that first piece has been published. It's out in the Journal of Peace Research. You can go ahead and read it. And in that piece, we didn't differentiate by insurgent type. We just assumed that all the insurgents were motivated with the same sorts of ideas and ideologies. We didn't really differentiate the target sets, uh, what they said that they were doing. This paper, we do that. Uh, So we're looking at, and we have data that's refined enough to say that was a religiously inspired operation versus this was more of a nationalist inspired operation. And I'll get into the data in a second. Um, I don't think this is working, so I'll just have to go from the keyboard. So the central question to this paper is, does the motivations of insurgents matter for how an insurgency evolves? If you think about Syria, we have just secular actors, nationalist actors trying to defend against a corrupt state, but we also have Islamists active. And the question is, is should we be thinking about, as a Western community, as outsiders, about targeting them differently? Molly, you had a case where you had the Tuareg, National Self-Determination Movement, much to their chagrin, allying themselves with Islamists and regretting it. Um, and so the key question is, we're trying to figure out, is does it matter? So if you're trying to counter the Mali insurgency, are the particular villages where you go in, and if it's a nationalist insurgency, do you use different tactics? And we're talking about force. We're actually using uh, talking about the use of force, not necessarily concessions um, at this point. And, and in this case, it makes sense, because Moscow actually doesn't give a lot of concessions. Anybody familiar with how they engage in insurgents, uh, particularly in the Caucasus? Um, And then do they respond differently to different kinds of counterinsurgency operations? And Moscow did make some strategic or tactical differences depending upon how you define that. Sir Hugh, you have particular definitions, but Moscow does choose when it has an operation, whether it's a violent episode, how to counter that. Some cases it does nothing, it lets it pass. Other cases it goes in and it will cordon off an entire village. And we talked about that in the first paper as denial. So they actually set up roadblocks and they do not allow people, to the best that they can do that, in and out because the idea is you isolate the insurgents. Or they actually have enough intelligence and they have pretty good intelligence, <coughs> uh, pretty good in, um, um, intel coming from both sides. And they go in and they pick out somebody. So they pick out Sir Hugh and they say, you've done, perpetrated this operation. They threaten his family. Uh, and In that case, they're actually punishing an individual or a set of individuals that they know is part of a cell. And Moscow knows this, and it can actually choose which operation it's going to do. Some cases, uh, its decision is constrained by the forces on the ground, how close it is to a federal base, or whether it's close to a, a police base. We do, this is a very uh, deep, um, 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 complicated statistical analysis. We actually have data on all of that. So, Rob, I'll do the books for you just to explain how I came to this. So, this is three of my books. Uh, which explain where I came from and why I got to this topic. So my first book was on the geography of ethnic violence, and you can see here, this is a map of the Caucasus. And in that book, I was concerned about under what conditions is ethnic conflict? So you have a society riven by ethnic cleavages. When will you get violence? And so there, I did a, a, a statistical analysis of all ethnic groups worldwide, looked at their settlement patterns <coughs> and their relationships to the central government, uh, to try and figure out, does it matter whether they're urban or rural? It turns out urban minorities tend not to rebel if they're part of a broader uh, sort of imperial kind of state. That's not the case for rural. So you think about the wars in former Yugoslavia, it was pretty much rural areas that sort of were up um, first. Uh, but then I did in-depth case studies. Um, and actually in that case, there was a situation in which Moscow negotiated and that was with the Tatars. Tatarstan was in the early parts uh, when the Soviet Union was dissolving, Tatarstan declared that it just wanted greater autonomy, and Moscow was actually willing to negotiate with Tatarstan, and we ended up not having violence there. Not the case when dealing with the Chechens. Moscow wouldn't even really meet with them at all. It really put down the line and said, absolutely not. So that was the first book. Then my second book was looking at civil war termination, and there I was interested in how do you get a durable peace. And again, looking at sort of the force structure and uh, the security sector of a a country after war ends, it turns out to be a critical factor. And unfortunately, if you look at most (coughs) negotiated settlements, although it may be a part of the negotiated settlement, DDR, uh, demobilization, disarmament, and reintegration are usually always part of it, but the actual reconstitution, the true security sector reform of of militaries, tends not to happen. It may be part of the provisions, but then it's not implemented. Um, And so in that book, I looked at all kinds of Civil War settlements, from victory to negotiated settlements, and learned a lot about how different sides think about the use of force within the state and sort of the commitments that each side needs to make to one another in order to feel secure, right, to not sort of keep arms at bay, Um, um, ceasefires and stalemates, which actually turn out to be more stable than negotiated settlements. And as military types, you understand why. You're less likely to go after somebody if they're armed. Whereas in negotiated settlements, one side usually will disarm or may disarm, and then the other side, if they decide to abrogate agreement, which is what happened in Sudan, they'll go after them. And then the third book was on the global resurgence of religion, investigating whether indeed there is a global resurgence of religion, and then sort of what are the dynamics of that. And in that book, we have, uh, that's a co-authored book with Timothy Shaw at Georgetown and Dan Philpot at Notre Dame, And um, in that book, um, uh, we have a couple of case studies on civil wars and terrorism. And what's important and what matters for this topic today is it turns out that religious actors as transnational actors do have networks and ties and ideas and institutions that flow across borders, making it more difficult for states to sort of control what's happening within their borders. And so going back to my first book, two things. The first thing is is I didn't differentiate ethnicity, meaning that I treated it the way most people, most scholars treated it, as a lump category. That could mean differences in language, differences in race, differences in religion, or differences in culture. I didn't bother to unpack it. I just assumed if there are ethnic differences from the center versus the periphery, that was enough. And it always irritated me because anybody who knows the play (coughs) of politics in Chechnya, in the first war, it really was a national self-determination struggle. But after 96, when they sued for peace and Zierinowski got the peace, Yeltsin was not very happy about it. Basically, the Chechens won that war. From 96 to 99, that's when you started seeing religion coming in much more into Chechnya, in part because it was an anarchic situation and some resources were coming in, ideas were flowing. um, And so from 96 to 99, you started seeing religion take on a much greater role. Well, I wasn't able to explain that because I didn't bother in my first book to unpack that. Uh, I could explain other things, but I couldn't explain that. Um, And so I've always wanted to do that, and so that's what I'm doing in this research, is really trying to understand, do different types of motivations matter for violence? And I'm talking large-scale violence, and so I've been working on trying to really understand the core difference between an insurgent, a person, a citizen, us, me, if I were motivated by nationalism, if I say, you know, I did defend the U.S. Constitution, I raised my hand, I was a patriot. Um, I wasn't necessarily fighting for as an American. Um, what does that mean? And well, What it means is that you're fighting for some sort of imagined community. Uh, there may or may not be blood ties. Uh, and the idea is that you're going to sacrifice yourself individually for a group. And there is no guarantee that me as an individual, is gonna benefit from that. It just means that my country, my nation, is gonna live on as a result of my sacrifice. That's the And there's something good about that, about my nation that I'm willing to fight and die for. Moreover, you tend to be, nationalism is within a confined territory, so you tend to be fighting over a particular set of land or territories when you're fighting along national, or you're thinking about fighting along nationalist lines. So immortality comes in, Right, But it comes in for the group, for the nation. It's not the case for religious actors. So if you read the work of Mark Juergensmeyer, Jessica Stern, there really is a sense, among some, and I'm, I'm, I'm drawing, these are ideal types, I'm being a very, very, person here. There is a sense that the person believes, if they really are fighting and dying for religious tenets, that they're gonna somehow be safe, go to heaven. And here I'm talking about the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, where there's a sense of heaven. And it turns out that Judaism, actually, heaven and salvation don't play as large a role. But for Islam and for Christians, there is a sense that you're going to go to heaven and that you, as an individual, your sacrifice, if you really believe that you're doing this for God, for some divine purpose, for some transcendental uh, reason, that your individual salvation will be there, that you believe that. It's not the case. The other thing is that attachment to a particular territory. We know that there's Jerusalem. I've done a lot of work on Jerusalem. But the idea when you're part of a religious community that's different from a national community is that a true definition of a church is where your fellow members are. So the Catholic church is actually global. Yes, there's Rome, yes, there's the the papal state, but the real church is really where your members are. Um, And so the attachment to a particular land or circumscribed land is broader than it is for nations. So you don't have this sort of self-contained. And we think, Yuri and I hypothesize, that this matters for how expansive a given fight is, if you're countering religious insurgents versus nationalist insurgents, uh, insurgents. Um, and so nationalists, we argue, would tend to be or tend to more readily look like defensive, localized fights within a circumscribed territory. And anybody who's looked at the history of Europe, we can we'll pick on the Hungarians. Any Hungarians here? You know, when the Hungarians pull out a map, they always go to a map that's the most expansive back to the. 17th and 18th centuries. They don't go to the 20th century. And it's because nationalists are trying, they, they, they have a sense of what the land is, but it's still sort of located, there's still a focal point about what constitutes the Hungarian homeland. And most nations, there's a couple of exceptions. The Roma don't have a homeland. But we know about them precisely because they're an exception. So why the insurgents? insurgent? I'm not picking on Islam. And in fact, I've written another whole book and an article on why I don't think it's Islam, I think it's where Muslim societies are in their, their sort of political development trajectory, and we can, I can give you that whole argument um, about, because Christianity back in the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries uh, was politicized and instrumentalized for political reasons, and we just seem to be in a, a phase or a historical period right now where Muslim societies are trying to figure out what the proper role of religion is uh, within their societies. Uh, and, and, and there's some interpretations that are more extremist. And we can talk about sort of the reinterpretation of jihad uh, by Khatoub and the idea that it's no longer an internal struggle, but external struggle. and individual's rob has an individual responsibility to go out and defend um, Sir Hugh. So I've done a lot of work on civil wars, um, and it turns out that most civil wars, upwards of three quarters, if you look at relig- religiously inspired or religiously based civil wars, and that's where the combatants actually identify with a different faith within the war or they're fighting over religion so tajikistan there was a fight after the soviet union collapse whether it was going to be a sharia law Sh- the sharia law was going to be the main law of the land whereas the wars of former yugoslavia it's still debated among scholars the degree to which religion was central um i think most scholars if you had to really weigh and did sort of a meta analysis there's a sense it was more much more peripheral than it was let's say in afghanistan or in um, uh, Tajikistan, um, but if you, so, so there's peripheral and central. Um, if you look at both types, nine out of ten of them involve Islam as one of the combatants, one side. Um, and then two-thirds of them, um, 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 the ones where it's um, between sort of Muslims and Christians, involve is, uh, Muslims as one side. And then if you look at terrorism, we know this, Asad Mahagdam has probably done the definitive study on this. Broadly speaking, Bob Pape's done the work on the suicide terrorism, although Bob denies religion has anything to do with it. He and I have had a number of discussions, uh, polite ones, about it. Um, if you look at it since 1981, most of the suicide terrorism episodes that we've witnessed it is people who are inspired by Salafi jihadism. So this idea that you have a, an obligation to defend against outsiders, not only infidels, but apostates, people who don't, you know, you may be fellow Muslims who don't Accept uh, your interpretation um, of scripture, and then if you look at uh, jihadi suicide missions, um, most of them are uh, committed by is- Islamists of the Salafi uh, variant. So types of religious violence. So just like we didn't really differentiate and disaggregate different kinds of ethnicity and ethnic violence, we didn't. We're, we're a little sloppy still as a field. Now fields are its accumulation of knowledge. We're getting there. Thomas Haghammer, I think, was the first person to differentiate different kinds of religious violence to get our head around it. So there's the nationalist separatists. So this would be Chechnya after 99, right, um, where you really had people sort of trying to split off because they, some of the Chechens felt as if they needed to be separate from Moscow. Then you have the pan-religious, some of the Chechens. So Basayev would be sort of the national separatist. The more modern era, it would be Umarov. He's a pan-jihadist. I'll show pictures of these guys, a pan-jihadist who thinks that all of the Caucasus should be part of a caliphate that extends this arc across. And then there's a the revolutionary. I see these guys as vigilantes. So these are the guys in the street, and they tend to be guys, um, who are throwing acid in young women's faces. They're trying to correct behavior. They're social they're vigilantes. And so, again, looking at the data, we're trying to get a sense of if Moscow's facing different kinds of insurgents, from, a religious, from the religious law, what should they be doing and how should they be thinking about uh, combating them? Um, so again, sort of back to the introduction, we think, we hypothesize in this paper that the basis of motivation may influence the strategy of the actors um, and influence their priorities. So what are they trying to achieve? Are they going to go after federal structures or are they going to go to a bathhouse where there's wine and drinking? Right? And so which one are they gonna do? If they're national centrist, national separatists, they're more likely to attack police stations, government officials, assassinations, that sort of thing. But if they're more of this vigilante type, then they're more likely to go after where they see sort of moral corruption happening. Um, and uh, attacks like here, the national separatists, t- attack Moscow or anybody that they see as representative of Moscow or uh, a proxy government that they think is sort of uh, helping Moscow. Pan-Islamic, they'll attack Western um, Muslim transgressors. And then the revolutionary, the vigilantes will attack fellow-Muslims. So they'll go after the apostates rather than the infidels. So the empirical questions, I'm a barefoot empiricist. I love data, and I like data to help me to adjudicate theories and hypotheses. So that's why this paper is fun for me, because we can actually go in and ask these questions, and then sort of let the data adjudicate. Whether you agree with the interpretations, that's different. Um, But we have a number of empirical questions that we just did not know the answers to. So one, how, if at all, does religion shape the insurgency? What does it look like? If you can really take and just say this was an insurgent attack that was based in religious motivation, does it look differently than other kinds? Didn't know that question before we started the research. Um, do they fight differently uh, from those with more traditional aims? And here I'm talking about nationalists, what we think of most civil wars or, or insurgencies. Um, and then do they, again, select different types of strategies, targets, and respond to different types of incentives? So are they more likely um, to respond differently with selective incentives, so the targeting, sort of the punishment strategy? It turns out Islamists do not like it, um, versus, and it. But it turns out that selective incentives, punishment of nationalists, works better. Somehow it cows them better. Um, And then the local global dimensions of the fight. Is it the case that these are local fights that sort of have this overlay for greater legitimacy? Um, Or is there really sort of a global pattern or global dynamics that are influencing? And we have some data that show that indeed, actually, among the religious um, insurgents, there does seem to be a connection to things happening globally or at least beyond the borders of the Caucasus. So here this is Bob Pape. Although this looks like a straw man argument, I think you guys agree Bob Pape's argument is a straw man argument that religion has nothing to do with suicide terrorist campaigns. And I'm, I just don't, you know, I think Asad Mahagadon has written a really beautiful rebuttal of Bob to say, "You're right on some, but the truth is there are many many cases in which your argument um, that the religious dimensions are incredibly important for us to understand them." But the point is, is that Bob's argument is that all violence is local, it's about the uh, local occupier. And if you remember, when he published his first piece in the American Political Science Review, Al-Qaeda was not even part of the data set. Boom, 9-11 hits, and Bob's in his head saying, uh-oh, how do I, how do I, how do I explain that? And what he's, he ended up saying was that Al-Qaeda sees all of the Middle East as its homeland. Which you could make that argument, but the problem is there's a lot of Al-Qaeda affiliates um, that don't necessarily see the Middle East and as, as, as uh, reminiscent of that. So this is one argument that's out there in the literature that all politics, uh, all violence is local, all politics is local. Um, but then there's another argument, and again, I think Asaf has done a really nice job on this, but there are other people. Um, Kilcullen sort of marries the two, saying that, they, 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 um, uh, that, they, that there's a local, uh, local um, sort of connection. But Asaf says that no, in this modern era, especially after 9 11. So, what's nice about the piece when he wrote his book is that he says, I'll concede prior to 2000, prior to 1995, but after 1995, there was a real shift where there seemed to be sort of this global community emerging to fight for global ideals. Um, And so, the idea was that there's a linking of leadership, personnel, resources, ideas um, across uh, different fights. And so nobody has really adjudicated these two arguments empirically, and that's what we're doing. It's a very simple exercise um, that we're trying to do. Who, who's more right and who's more wrong? It's not black and white. Uh, we actually, in the paper, we end up concluding that Kilcullen is probably more right than both. And So again, we're looking at the caucuses, uh, the North Caucasus, and um, pretty much the action happens in Chechnya But it does start emanating out after 97, 98, into Dagestan, into Ngushetia. And now we're actually seeing some of the violence going deeper into the Russian heartland, including into, by the way, moderate Tatarstan. We're now starting to see moderate imams being targeted in Tatarstan, which is is sort of, it's very tragic. All right, I told you I was going to show you some faces. Um, So we've got Boris Yeltsin, Mr. Peace. Wiping power from Gorbachev back in the late, 90, uh, late 80s, early 90s, followed by Vladimir Putin, of course, the current president. This is Dudayev, who was the first president. He was the first leader of the Chechen independence movement. He was an air force general, secular but pious. He was an Islamist. He was a Muslim. He, he had faith, but kept it private to himself. Um, he was actually called back or called to Chechnya out of, um, I think he was in Latvia with his a uh, unit, and so we really, he had been watching independence movements in the Baltics, and uh, the Chechen independence movement asked him to lead it, and so he did, he ended up becoming the leader of the Chechen independence movement. Um, he ended up getting killed on the battlefield, committed nationalist, right, he died on the battlefield, Moscow killed him. He was replaced by Mas'ara, more pious man, but still believed that religion should be kept private, was not interested in sort of imposing Sharia law throughout Chechnya, because remember, a large portion of the population is still Russian-speaking or ethnic Russian. It wasn't all Chechens. And on top of that, Chechnya, they espouse a particular kind of Islam, which is Sufi and very local. And so it's very controversial, this idea of bringing in a Wahhabi Salaf Islam um, to a region that actually ha- abides by a tradition, an Islamic tradition, that's quite different. Um, but they tried. And the guy who sort of initiated it was this guy, Basayev. Who had ran against Moshana for presidency and lost and was pretty upset about it. Um, He was not pleased having to play second fiddle. And so he's the one that sort of really ramped up. And so I'd gone to Moscow and interviewed a lot of people who were associated with him to find out, was he a committed nationalist? (laughs) The asked the question, sitting in the interest hotel, which I think is now gone, um, and said, was he a committed nationalist or was did he really think that religion should be part of the public arena? And his closest interlocutors could not answer that question <coughs> most of them thought that he would probably he did want political power he did run for president in chechnya uh, but he was also religious and, and 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 deeply religious and i say that not really understanding what that meant for him i can't get in his mind but it was a question mark um, but in any event he used religion I t- in one of my articles i talk about outbidding why elites start outbidding he used religion to challenge mishadov and Maschadov started screaming to Putin saying, the, Islam and the Wahhabis are coming, I need your help. And Moscow would not listen. Similar to what they were doing in the early 90s, they just would not negotiate with the Chechens. So what do they do? They killed him. So a moderate right, killed him. He ends up getting killed, and so now we're stuck with this guy, Doko Umarov, who is trying to establish an Islamic caliphate um, across the Caucasus region. Um, and Umarov really does. I haven't interviewed about him, but um, his statements, if you go to the Q- 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 Qaz, uh website, uh, you can see clearly that they really do see themselves, and he is the leader of a of a global jihadist um, enterprise. All right. So why the North Caucasus? A diversity of cases. So we've got multiple republics, multiple regions, and lots of data. Moreover, we have variation across the region in terms of violence. Some villages are highly implicated, of course. Uh, grozny is the heart of it all but it doesn't stay the heart of it all um and then uh, we have a variety of geographic socioeconomic factors levels of employment one of the most common arguments out there these are just men who don't have anything else to do you know so there's an opportunity structure so they can go and and fight uh, but we so we can control for that Um, and then of course moscow um, has you know perpetrated or, or developed this narrative that this is sort of the heart or a heart of the global jihadist struggle um, um, uh, and that uh, what they're fighting is global jihadis. And so we sort of question that. Is it the case? It might be the case. And actually there's some evidence to that, but it's not as um, strong as Moscow would have us believe. Um, and then you have locals and actually Medvedev, when he came in, um, he, he did actually say that a lot of this is locally driven. and he helped develop a lot of Chechen infrastructure and roads, rebuilding it after the obliteration in 1999 and following. But the the, the other thing is some people stress the local grievances more. So the data, so this is all episodes of violence as reported from 2000 to 2012. It's 31,000 reported episodes, so you can do a lot of You can play and really run a lot of different controls. There were 9,200 episodes of rebel-initiated violence, so we know that the rebels went in and they bombed, um, 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 they wouldn't bomb us, but they would go in a federal uh, police um, 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 uh, checkpoint, right? And then the government had about 23,000 responses or counter responses or attacks. Uh, It's it's, um, Memorial, which is one of the, most respected human rights organizations in Russia collected all of these data and coded them into reports that we then could extract and analyze. And they always gave the village name, the date, the time. And what's really striking, I think some of these insurgents really have watched too much Hollywood movies, is they often declare while they're doing what they're doing, they say why they're doing it. And so we have some reports where they say, you know you're all sitting here drinking wine on this glorious afternoon if we come back again we're going to do this again um, and so the reports a good number of the reports we actually do know why um, the insurgents are doing what they're doing or they've been captured and Memorial has gotten hold of the, the jail records uh, for the people so the reports have all it's, it's a wonderful data set from that perspective it's terrible because the topic but it's a wonderful data set from that perspective and then they're geocoded so one of the questions we're interested in is the spatial distribution of violence and so we know exactly where, pinpointing where each village is. Um, and we can see, OK, if village Y had a violent episode, do we see it right next door in visit village Z? Um, or does it go to village D over there? Um, and it turns out with the Islamists, actually, it's more likely to go to village D, whereas for the nationalists, it's more likely to go to Z. So the actors, they're described or self-described. They say who they are sometimes. With terms such as Muslim, Salafist, Mujahideen, or Wahhabi, so again, we're looking for religious inspiration. What do you see yourself fighting for? Um, and then, are they terrorist attacks, hostage taking, kidnapping, firefights, ambushes? So we're looking at the actions, and then the targets. And so, in order for us to have coded it as an, an episode of Islamist violence, it had to have one of each of those three categories. So it's pretty—we're um, uh, pretty confident that we're doing that. And again, for us. We said if a village experienced one episode of violence over um, um, then it then it then uh, in a month, then they were coded as a one in our analysis. So again, I was telling you about the sauna. It's pretty. It, like I said, I think they watch too much Hollywood TV. Um, so you say if we once again learn that drunkenness and debauchery—I mean, it's <laughs> just great language, right—take place here, we won't leave anyone alive. And so they're sort of warning, saying, we control the town. This is a social vigilante, a moral vigilante. Um, And then the group left the sauna without doing any harm. But the next time they come back and they may throw a Molotov cocktail um, at the the sauna. All right, so the key findings, I'm wrapping it up. Um, Although I have some interesting data to show to support each of these key findings. um, uh, I'm going to run through each one of them. So... It turns out, among the key findings, Islamist violence overall is really a small proportion of the violence. If you read the rhetoric coming out of Moscow from 97, let's say, although in 96, they already started issuing concern about Islamists coming into the region, but at least after 97, 98, you would think that all the violence is Islamist. But it varies in range anywhere from About, you know, uh, seven. the max is uh, 19%. That's the most expansive definition we use. The intermediate is we're pretty confident that that's actually capturing what we think of. But it ranges from 3% to 17% of all violence, which means the vast majority of violence in the region is, if you want to think about it, religiously inspired versus political national separatists. Get off our backs. Get out of our territory. (coughs) Leave us alone right so most of the violence is not religiously inspired however the violence that is religiously inspired is small but it's increasing and it has been increasing over time and again it is there is evidence we have data showing that there are jihadis outsiders foreigners coming in um, tracking that over time but you can see that over time the islamist violence um, has been increasing over time and then you can see where most of it's happening. The lighting in here is terrible because you can't really see. But Chechnya gets the bulk of it um, in terms of the both kinds of violence. Um, and then the Islamist is more contained into Dagestan and the Chechen regions. But it has been spreading over time. And this is number of events, so 50, 100, 100, 200. Um, all right, Islamist attacks are more indiscriminate. So one of the hypotheses is that if you really think that you're gonna die and that other people are apostates or infidels, you don't mind dying and you don't mind taking others out with you. Um, and so some of my earlier research showed that civilians in religiously inspired civil wars tend to suffer more. There's higher civilian casualty counts um, in religious civil wars, and we find that here. And this is percentage, so 43%, or well, let's stick with the intermediate, 36% of all um, um, Islamist inspired violent attacks kill civilians versus 29%, and that's statistically significant. So, if you're in, so, and what it means to us is, is they're going after softer targets. They're going after places where there's more civilians, cafes. So, you're sitting there having a nice cup of coffee, espresso with your friends, and somebody comes, and you're more likely to be a target in Islamist violence. Whereas nationalists, there's a sense that they circumscribe it, they're a little bit more careful about what they're targeting, people around them. Uh, It's a tighter circle. And then again, Islamist violence is more deadly. Another finding from some earlier work I had done is that religiously-inspired civil wars are more deadly overall, not just towards civilians, but overall. And they tend to last longer. They last about a year and a half longer, on average. This is all averages. And you can see that um, religiously-inspired attacks result in fatalities 36% of the time, whereas non-religious Um, um, only 26% of the time. So they're more effective. I mean, if their job, how's that? If their job is to kill, um, it turns out the Islamists are more effective in doing that. And that that follows from sort of the indiscriminate nature. They're more likely. So this is trying to get at the difference between nationalism and being tied to a particular land. And indeed, if you look, um, Chechnya has seen 60% of all attacks that we think is conducted by nationalists. Um, and 45% by Islamists. But what's interesting is the majority of Islamist attacks did not take place in Chechnya. It took, you know, the rest of the, the region, ha- oh, as well, has been suffering from Islamist attacks as well. Um, so Chechnya has bore the brunt of this, which makes sense, is where the, the <coughs> big push for national self-determination and independence took place. But it is more widespread beyond the broader region. And the Islamist is, is, is more widespread than the, um, the nationalists. And then here, this is actually looking from, you have a village, and then we wanted to see where did the next attack occur? How far away? And similar to the data about more expansive for the the, the religious violence, uh, the Islamist was more expansive. So it was 133 kilometers. So you imagine going and attacking a liquor store or a police station if you're an Islamist and they declare why they're doing it. They then drive about 133 kilometers and perpetrate their next attack. Whereas the nationalists stay put, they only go 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers. Uh, so an hour away versus two hours away. And again, this lends support to the idea that nationalists are more self contained or they stay more self contained. Um, and then, again, this is back to trying to adjudicate Mahagadam from faith, thinking that Kirkulan is right or seeing that Kerkolin is right, and looking at the relationship to mean number of international suicide attacks. So this is using. Um, the, the, um, the, it's not GDIL, the, the suicide database put together by the US government um, and tracking it to the violence episodes that we have in our data set. And you can see that the Islamist violence more so tracks to global suicide attacks. So, and so the question is, is, is there a sense of camaraderie when you witness a suicide attack? But this relationship, you can just see by the numbers, 16% to 14%. They're not as large as, you know, um, they're still statistically significant, but there's not a huge relationship there. Lending more support to PAPE, the idea that it's more local. It's not the case for holidays. I was really shocked that actually, this is so tied to the religious calendar. So Ron Hasner has some interesting work really trying to track battles and wars based on his, his thinking is, is if you're really doing God's divine work, then you're going to be favored by God, God during Rosh Hashanah or you know, the Seven Days War or something, right? And so he, I think he, we sent this paper to him. He said, Monica, did you look at the religious calendar? I said, no. Well, here it is. And actually, it's, it's actually pretty tightly connected. And what's really interesting is that the target-based ones, um, that they're the ones that um, those are sort of the vigilante guys. They, they're bad guys on the holidays. I mean, they go out and they're targeting. Now, you could make a secular, very practical argument for why they're doing it. They're off from work, right? But I don't know. The, the idea, the, the fact that it goes from the expanded definition of what constitutes a museum all the way down to the guys that we really think are, are doing this for religious reasons um, that uh, there seems to lend support that the more intense you are, the more that the religious calendar, i.e., the more the religious ideas, theology, is underpinning what you're doing. Um, and then this is back to sort of what we were looking at, this is a really complicated way, but is it the case that if you go and you attack individuals with intelligence, which is more effective against, um, <laughs> is it more effective against Islamists than nationalists? And it turns out that it's less effective against nationalists, um, but more effective ag- against Islamists, meaning that the nationalists, you can cow them more easily. You can actually, nationalists, you can fight them more easily. That you can actually get them to sort of stop their violence. The Islamists, it's more difficult. Which is good, I mean, bad news, because if it is the case that we're seeing and witnessing more Islamist violence. Um, the bad news is that governments are going to have a harder time fighting them. It's less um, um, uh, going in and doing selective incentives. Actually, going after an Islamist is not as effective a strategy. So summary, um, one of two, and I'm finishing up now. So it turns out that globally, religious belief and practice are on the rise. There's exceptions. Western Europe, but only corners of Western Europe. Um, Four Danes have no no faith at all. I think it's 11% believe in God today. Um, But uh, beyond sort of, and you can read the God Century book, we have lots of data on that, um, that that sort of um, people who are adhering to uh, religious traditions is on the rise, and also pushing it into the public arena. Um, and then understanding the conditions under which conflicts will be framed uh, in religious terms is therefore critical. Because I have a slide, I don't show it here, that since the 1970s, the proportion of civil wars that had a religious tint to them has really gone up. And, and um, uh, so religious wars, they're not only increasing over time, uh, half of all civil wars raging, although I haven't done a count since for two years. I stopped in 210. 2010. Um, Then half of all civil wars had a religious tint. I think it's probably more now with Syria, Mali, uh, and Libya. I mean, where are we with Libya today? Um, And then religious wars are nastiest of all types. Again, I already told you that they're harder on civilians. They last longer. Um, They're harder to terminate. And and by the way, they're more likely to recur. So even if you get them ended, they're more likely to recur. Um, And then within that's the broad general um, um, findings. Uh, within the, the caucuses itself the Islamist violence uh, is a small share overall this is a really important finding I presented this work in Moscow they don't care <laughs> they see they see as Islamists everywhere but but it really is important because it really is going to call your attention to what we should do to be countering these and I would hope just thinking about different kinds of motivations we won't be so lumping in our approach to trying to combat and combat it um, most of the difference in sort of the targeting and um, the outcomes that we're witnessing is a difference in, in, in scale, not kind, which, again, is very important. And you could think, well, Monica, why did you go through all of this work? Well, we actually didn't know. We really thought that the Islamists were going to be these diehards. You absolutely can't put them down. There's some truth to that, um, but um, it means that you're probably going to have to go even a little harder. I hate to say that, you know, advocating more violence. But... Um, And then Islamist violence does follow suicide trends more closely than nationalist um, or non-Islamist. It's more geographically dispersed. I think this is important um, because, in a sense, my looking at the sort of the play of what's happened in the Caucasus, Moscow has sort of in some ways created a more dispersed fight than uh, might have been the case. Um, And then Islamist violence is less responsive to coercion, to this sort of selective incentive of going in and pulling somebody out. And then, you know, good academic, but this is really the caucuses. Those data are really tied to the caucuses. And so I feel confident saying this about the caucuses, we really run the numbers and stuff, but does it hold? Um, And I'd be curious to have a discussion about that, if anybody knows any other wars or conflicts are they seeing sort of similar dynamics or do they know of any other studies that can help us? We're, we're starting to look at Syria and Mali um, because there's papers under review and people said, how generalizable is this? Um, I think it is, but I can't say that with any confidence at this point. All right, theoretical implications. Um, motivations matter and we think that different kinds of bids matter. So you watch the polities and um, we think that when religion enters the political arena, it can get very nasty. Um, and so you try to do that um, and then you know, try to control that uh, and tamp down on that. Um, and then I do think the global aspects of transnational actors, such as religious actors, matter. There's interpretations of tra- texts. And those interpretations flow over internets. We know about these sort of internet ayatollahs and imams that are influencing people thousands of miles away. Um, and then the North Caucasus successful elites made religious bids. Besaid was successful. I hate to say it, Masadov was not. Now, in part, it was because his interlocutor Moscow would not listen, and decided that assassination was a better option. They were wrong. Masadov probably could have ushered in a period of peace in that region. It was really a lost moment. And so now we're going to probably live another generation. I mean, the violence is it's subdued. They've put in place. Um, off this young man who's basically a thug, and he's put in place a, a police state. And he's got Moscow's backing. Um, but, but there's very little political liberty and, and um, sustained peace in the region. Um, and then variations in outcomes. We think this is one of the conclusions in our paper. But again, it's variation in count comes in scale, not in kind. That's very important that you have to take these different kinds of motivations uh, into account. Policy implications, I'm at the new school of government, the Pobotnik school, so I'm going to talk about the policy implications. Um, so Islam is disproportionately implicated in violence of all sorts, uh, but most of that violence is directed at apostates. There's a great study done by West Point trying to wag its finger at Al-Qaeda and all its affiliates saying that um, you know if, if it's really the case you're trying to defend Islam, they're killing off fellow Muslims predominantly. I think it's defining like 85% or 90% of the victims. Um, and then I think that really trying to understand um, why a conflict escalates um, and thinking about our models that we use, the security dilemma, the deterrence model, spiral models Is it fear? Is it greed? Is it a combination of both? Why are the actors doing what they're doing? Um, so not all violence is local, but most of it is. We actually think again that you know the the, the data showing the global connections. There's some relationships there, but they're not as strong I think as Asaf would like us to believe. Um, but Bob is not completely right, <laughs> it's so weird. Um, and then we think governments are in a position to contain it or make things worse. So strategy matters, counterinsurgency tactics matter, um, and then uh, the first paper turning a blind eye. Um, You actually do want to contain control borders. Um, And so in the first paper, we do show that uh, having more porous borders, because it turns out the different republics have different border policies, um, it actually can inflame. So one of the policy recommendations out of the first paper, which we sort of are seeing in this paper, is that you do want to sort of close your borders and not allow jihadists in. Why are they there? They're there to muck up trouble. So there we agree with Moscow or actually the republics it was individual republican leaders that decided to do border policy um, and our argument which we think the data support is that it can only assert itself locally um, uh, the global jihad if there's grievances on the ground and you know in the case of the caucuses of course from the caucuses perspective they think they've been fighting a war for 300 years from moscow's perspective they were supposed to have been fighting for a couple of weeks um, but this has been ongoing for a long time so history You really have to understand the history and the grievances at play and respect them. And starting in the 90s, at least, we can talk about the modern Russian era, um, Moscow just was not interested in listening. Medvedev seemed to be a little bit more sympathetic, but he's not there anymore, and we've got Putin back, and Putin really does believe in an iron fist. Um, And so I will end it there. thank
0: you very much.